Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. My dad was a doctor and he smoked. Right. During the summer at his office, the and they would be Lysoling. Yeah, it was in the 90s. No one cared. They would be like well, Lysoling there. He smoked in the office. In the office. His secretary. <laughs> True vintage too. behavior. Because he just quit a few <gasps> years ago, thank God. But yeah, lifelong smoker. Hi, Dad. Wow. Love you. This is Hot Buttons, a show about the future of fashion and culture on a changing planet. I'm Christina Binkley. I'm a contributing writer at Vogue Business and The Wall Street Journal. This week, H&M came under the lens of a court's investigation and the results are not pretty. The title of the piece says it all. Quote, H&M showed bogus environmental scores for its clothing. End quote. It's a deeply researched article with wonderful visuals showing just how poorly H&M misused the HIG Sustainability Index, that's starting to become familiar to some of our listeners, to make its clothing look more sustainable than it was. Was this inadvertent? Or is this more greenwashing from fast fashion brands? We have the author of the article with us today to talk through the details. And then we're going to keep talking transparency as we dive into the latest Fashion Transparency Index, recently released by Fashion Revolution. It ranks brands from everything from worker pay and conditions to emissions throughout the supply chain. Spoiler, this industry has a long way to go before it calls itself sustainable. And we're going to finish with things big and little that are pressing our buttons. I'm joined by my regular co-hosts, Shilla Kim Parker and Rachel Kibbe. Hi, guys. Hey, Christina. Hi there. Shilla is the CEO and co-founder of Thrilling, a marketplace for vintage powered by mom-and-pop shops. And Rachel is the founder of Circular Services Group, an advisory firm focused on circularity and fashion. I want to hear a little bit of levity before we get into some deep topics. What did you guys do over the weekend? Oh, Rachel, you go first. Well, you know, I did a little... I don't like to brag, but a little CrossFit, but I do have a story. I show up to my class on Sunday and my coach is outside smoking a cigarette between classes. (laughs) What? (laughs) What? Like an actual, not not even an e-cigarette? I couldn't believe it, an actual analog cigarette. And I look at him and he looks at me and he says, hard night last night. also bartends on the weekends and he'd been out until 4 a.m. I don't know if he was still drunk or just also <laughs> still hungover. We're I was going to say, how one. was class? Actually, he really, like, I would not have been as on point as he was. He was hurting, but mm. he was very dialed in. Shella, can you top that for a weekend experience? <laughs> I can't. My weekends are always, you know, we're concierges for our children, for yeah. toddlers. Uh, um, yeah. You know, we're short order cooks, mm-hmm. drivers. It's a lot of uh, how do you keep two very rambunctious boys active and engaged and completely exhausted by the end of the day? That's that's basically the the weekend game. Yeah, they're not exhausted. You're exhausted. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I'm really excited about this. We have today, drum roll, our first guest. All right, let's get to that topic we love here, data. You can't have a sustainable industry without it, and so far there isn't much of it in the fashion industry. And when there is, well, it's often pretty suspect. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the controversy surrounding the HIG index and whether its data ended up favoring synthetics over natural fibers and how it took, now it took another blow. 
H&M, one of the original fast fashion brands, may just be using it to greenwash their clothing lines. We have our first guest on the pod. Yay! And boy, does she know her way around data. Amanda Shendrick is a visual journalist at Quartz, and she just published a deep and pretty damning investigation of how H&M has been mislabeling their clothes as environmentally conscious, when in fact they're often quite the opposite. The headline says it all. H&M showed bogus environmental scores for its clothing. One of the things Amanda found in this is that H&M was displaying data that gave literally the mirror image of what the garment's impact actually was on the environment. Of the 600 women's clothing scorecards on H&M's UK website the week before this article was published in June, more than 100 of them included errors that made less sustainable clothing appear to be the opposite. In one truly mind-blowing case, there was a dress with a water use score of negative 20%, which means it uses 20% more water than the average, according to the Hig Index. But it was listed on H&M's website as using 20% less. Amanda did reach out for comment when she was done with her reporting. She got something of a comment from H&M. We'll hear more about that from Amanda. Um, but the links on H&M's website to these scorecards have disappeared. So if you're going to H&M's website looking for this now, you will not find it um, because they were taken down almost immediately after Amanda and Quartz reached out to them. Hi, Amanda. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and to be your first guest. <laughs> we're we are so honored. excited to have you here. The pressure is high. We've been begging to bring a guest on, so we were so excited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Amanda, fashion isn't your beat at Quartz. You are a visual journalist. You're a data journalist. But So investigating how data is used and misused is what you do. I'm curious about how you get drawn, got drawn to this particular story. I'm, I'm a journalist, too. So when I read something like that, I'm like, aha, who was the tipster? Who tipped you off to this? You don't have to tell us all your sources, but... <laughs> clues. <laughs> we appreciate clues. <laughs> yeah. No, you're going to be so disappointed this is what happened. Mm -hmm. I live in Scotland. Mm -hmm. It's not warm here. I was about to go on vacation to a very hot place. And so I was just noodling around the internet looking for something that I could wear in, in uh, very hot weather. Yeah. And I ended up on the H&M website. And as I was scrolling around, I saw this thing called the Hig Index underneath one of the items that I was looking at. And I'm a total data nerd. And so I got far more excited about the potential metrics uh, than the dress I was looking at. So I clicked on that just to do a bit of reading and, and see, you know, what is this? I'd never heard of it before. And um, so that was my first introduction to the Hig Index. Wow. And it just happened that the item that I clicked on was one of the items that I ended up reporting on, mm. which has this completely incorrect um, data. So I clicked through to check out the, the data um, on the HIG website because when they had these scorecards on the H&M website, there used to be a link to the profile also on the HIG site. So I clicked mm -hmm. through to that to see the extra data and noticed that the numbers were not the same. And wow. so there was no tip. Uh, it was just wow. me looking for something to wear in the warm weather. It was, and sheer good instincts. Not everybody has your skills at, at diving into data that way, but I mean, it's fascinating that it was all right there. I was to just be found. thinking that, right, exactly. I didn't quite realize that. Like, literally, it was different on the Higgs site than it was on HM. There was no uncovering to be found. 
besides clicking well, between the two sites for that part? Yeah, yeah, it wasn't hidden. The data wasn't hidden. It was on the the HIG website itself. Ah. When the data was ported over to the H&M website, that's where the error occurred. Fascinating. Huh. So what happens then when you, you, you discover something like this? Then you have to go to your editors. Presumably you have a team... Um, or I don't know, maybe you do all your programming and visuals yourself. But just walk us through what happened after, after that eureka moment. So I started by collecting data on 600 items on the H&M website that specifically had the HIG index scorecards on them. Because to be clear, not every item of clothing on the H&M websites had this uh, index associated with it. In fact, it was a very small fraction of items that had this associated with it. Um, I can't remember the exact percentage, but it was something like 8 or 7% of all of clothing all items yeah, and, that have this index on it. And they were items that had been flagged by H&M as green in some way or sustainable? Yeah, so all of these were on a, um, I don't remember exactly what the website said, but it said sustainability section or something like that. There was a drop down where you could select HIG index. Okay. And uh, it would display all of the items that had this HIG index scorecard associated with it. Wow. 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 And I will say also, they declined to participate in your investigation, which in some ways makes things easier and some things make some ways makes things much harder for you. Well, I didn't ask them at first. So when I discovered this, I didn't email them and say, hey, I discovered this. So I, I got all the data first. I got all the receipts, as it were, you know, yeah. screenshots and that kind of thing. Um, I wrote most of the piece. And then I contacted them. Because as what ended up happening, uh, they took it all down. So we needed to make sure that we had it all first and that mm-hmm. we knew what we were saying. And then we did them the courtesy of, of asking them about it and letting them know before we went public with it. Did you buy the dress? I don't, did, I don't remember. No, after yeah, this, I was question. like, I'm not buying anything yeah, from yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> so this is all over the last mo- month or so. Let's see. I published on the 29th of June. I discovered it on the 20th. June 20th? Wow. You did this in nine days? Yeah, I discovered it on the 20th. On the 27th, we were more or less ready to publish. And that's when we contacted HIG and H&M and the SAC um, with our findings. And we gave them a couple of days to um, uh, comment. They all responded with varying versions of, um, you know, support for the HIG index. And we're looking into this. Right. You know, not not really any information. If you were able to get the CEO of H&M in a room, what's the one question you would ask? Oh, that's a good question. What would I ask? <laughs> Does she have to just choose one? <laughs> <laughs> she would pepper that CEO. <laughs> in a private room. <laughs> that's right. Here's my scroll. <laughs> Two peppers. <laughs> yeah. Two questions. I mean, I suppose I would want to know if it was intentional, mm. but right. I can't imagine that's something that they would ever answer. Or that's, that's something that we were curious about as well. Yeah. Is there a reasonable excuse, in your opinion, for these labeling errors? To, no, um, based on your fa- facial reaction. Oh yeah, we're on a podcast. You <laughs> yeah, can't see my face. I'm just describing the <laughs> intense reaction. <laughs> not not really possible, in your opinion, for it to have been inadvertent. So, when I was researching. Uh, the article, or when I was writing the article up quickly, I um, talked to a greenwashing expert at a place called the Changing Markets Foundation. And uh, the guy I talked to, his name was George Harding Rolls. And 
I, I did ask him, I said, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with, is this just a stupid coding error? Like a really stupid programming error? Right. Mm-hmm. Or is this, is there foundation here? Like, did they mean to do this? Because it makes their clothing look um, more sustainable than they are. And he had the best response, which was he always assigns intentionality to corporations that are this large with this Mm. many resources. Mm. So whether or not they intended to do it, they have the resources and they have the standing. That's interesting. And they have the ability to not have that happen. We're not talking about a graduate student who made a calculation error. We're talking about one of the world's largest clothing companies that got their data wrong. And it it was just like porting the information from one website to another. And it's not acceptable for something that large with that much ability to make things right or to do things right. It's not fine. And so I I thought that was a really interesting uh, response. It kind of removes the idea of whether it was intentional or not and says it has a huge impact. So let's say it's intentional because we need to do something about it. Yeah. So it's less about intentionality and more just about responsibility. Intentionality doesn't matter, but you just have a responsibility not to make these mistakes. Yeah, responsibility and the impact is so large. I mean, there's yeah. there's context always to these things. Again, if we're talking about a, a student or a tiny company that has no resources and is just trying to do their best, that's a very different story right. than you like know, your the intern, second largest clothing manufacturer or whatever. Right? Yeah, it wasn't an intern doing yeah. this, and if it was. That, you know, maybe that's a problem in itself. What was most shocking to me is that most, like, so many items were purchased under the auspice of this data being correct. Even the items that were marketed as um, not having any sort of impact greater or less than the other items on the website, because they're under the Hig Index, they're being sort of marketed in a greenwashed way. What I do understand about the Hig Index, it sounds like it has a serious um, problem with uh, transparency, both with the data and how it works. And um, this same greenwashing expert that I talked to, he was telling me that they've had data scientists uh, go through the website and try to understand the tools. And there's tons and tons and tons of information about the Hague Index online. And so one would think that if you just found the right information or you read the right report, you could understand it. But it sounds like there's kind of like this greenwashing via excessive transparency or the Mm. wrong kind of transparency. They Mm -hmm. don't tell you the information that um, might be helpful. They just tell you a lot of information that's, that's not as helpful. That's wow. kind of how I understand it. And so it's, I think it's very important that we have data because we can't make change if we have no baseline and we need to be able to measure things in order to make change. But it's useless if the data is not, not useful or it's incorrect. Wow. The root of some of the criticism against the Hague has been that the LCAs that they're choosing are in large part funded by the industry itself and namely by companies that benefit from the way that they're measuring um, the environmental impact of fibers and giving better scores essentially to to polyester, um, which benefits the fast fashion industry because 60% of our textiles are now um, made of polyester, which is cheaper and um, better suited to the margins that benefit the fast fashion industry. 
So I guess this this sort of raises questions about whether you think that the industry can can industry a fund its own research. Has this ever worked for any other industry? And can, then can they self police themselves? I think the the policing uh, question is really interesting. I don't think it's impossible. I just think there's so many red flags and it's very difficult. And that's the case with any industry policing itself. For example, the SAC, the Sustainable Apparel Coalition, uh, which is the caretaker of the Hague Index, one of the founding members was H&M. And so it benefits H&M to uphold this metric. And there are hundreds of the world's largest fashion companies that fund and are members of the SAC. And so it doesn't benefit the SAC to call out the people that are funding them. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It can be done, but it's not really in anybody's interest or it's not in their own interest. And so there's a huge conflict of interest. And it also just leaves a lot of room for if anything does go wrong, whether by error or intention, the quickest sort of answer is, oh, well, it's funded by the industry, so it must be intentional. Um, so it puts it puts a bit of a target on their back. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you're if you're self policing, the standard probably needs to be significantly higher. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, honestly, Amanda's work here shows that regardless of the quality of the data that Hig Index, it was being twisted and misused by a company. So it wouldn't in this case it wouldn't even matter if they'd had better data. True. The last question, Amanda, I know this happens sometimes. Was there any piece of information that got left on the cutting room floor, did not make it into your story that, that you uh, would have loved to have had in there or that sort of sticks in your craw now? That's a fantastic question. Uh, I, yeah, as a journalist, I know that that happens so often. But in this piece, I really was able to get everything I really wanted to get into the piece. We. The data was so strong. The findings were really strong. Uh, you know, we got it all in there. And I was lucky to work with editors who also appreciate the value of nuance and getting into the nitty-gritty a little bit. I have to say, the whole the, this whole thing that, you know, you, you did it so beautifully and you went to them at the right point and, and gave them a couple of days to respond, which for a quick turnaround story like this is more than enough. I want to thank you, Amanda. This was great to have you on. Thank you for bearing with us. Um, let us know about your next investigation involving the fashion industry. We want to follow your work. Oh, thank you so much. This was so much fun. Thank you so much, Amanda. One of the things coming out of this that makes me really optimistic, even though obviously what we learned about H&M's use of the Hig Index sucks, is that We've got journalists from outside of the fashion industry looking at the fashion industry. And so much of the fashion industry has always operated in a silo, people in the industry navel-gazing. Um, and it's really high time we have people from outside saying this is an important industry, it's a big industry, we want to look at it. I think what's most interesting to me, too, is that um, it's just saying you're transparent isn't enough anymore. We used to, even just a few years ago... I feel like brands could just sort of throw around really vague phrases and commitments to transparency and just sort of talk about it. And people would be like, oh, great. And now it's just, it's not enough. And, and, and there's real risk involved at um, mistakes being made. Yep. 
or making commitments that you can't stand behind, um, real risk. Yeah. I mean, I think the the thing that's so incredible is that it was not a whistleblower. There was no meeting in a dark parking lot and exchanging of briefcases yeah. <laughs> type of moment. She just, you know, it was it was publicly available for all to see. And, yeah. you know, it does goes to show that we we, for a long time, did take brands at face value. And I think you know, consumers are starting to ask the right questions. Journalists are starting to ask all the right questions. Um, I think all of this just goes to emphasize, you know, how much we do need a source of truth in in the fashion industry and as well as like standards for how do you apply that truth? How do you apply that data? She made a point about, um, you know, there's haziness about how you apply some of the data in the Hig Index. And so, and that's in itself causing you know, inaccuracies and and um, misleading information for consumers. So it also makes me wonder, since uh, fashion is so marketing driven, especially around sustainability now, I think I mentioned in one episode, in certain ways, we're getting ahead of other industries because there's such a target on the fashion industry's back. Like, I don't see the equivalent of the Hig Index happening on our cell phones or on... Um, yeah. Uh, our mm. food. And so I wonder if there's a level of opportunity and optimism here, strangely, that mm, maybe we yeah. can become, have better standards than other industries and, and eventually. And, and models for other industries, in other words, Rachel. Yeah. You know what? That leads us right into our next topic, actually. This is Transparency Week on hot buttons, by the way. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> <We didn't. laughs> other other channels have Shark Week. We have Transparency we Week. We have Transparency Week. This is an incredibly important issue is you can't you can't measure things if you don't know what's going on. So um, so transparency is definitely one of the key issues that we need to tackle as we try to to create a more sustainable industry. Recently, Fashion Revolution released their latest transparency index report. And boy, does the fashion industry look bad. Granted, they noted improvements across all the metrics they report. That's great. But we're talking about going from an F to a D. A parent would be somewhat pleased, but not thrilled. <laughs> okay. Yay! <laughs> you got a D! Grading on a curve. Um, Rachel, can you tell us about this transparency index? Who's behind it? Is it something that the industry pays attention to? That's three questions, really. Um, who's behind this index? Um, what is it, and is it something that the industry pays attention to? And I think they're all three really good questions. And I'll start with sort of the history of this index, which stands from the it's the Fashion Revolutions trans- Annual Transparency Index, and they've been releasing these indexes since 2017, I believe, and they do global reports, and I think they also do country-based reports. Um, but the Fashion Revolution is sort of uh, near and dear to my heart in a way because they launched very soon after I sort of launched my career in this space, which was many, many years ago. They they were founded um, by Carrie Summers and Ursula de Castro in 2013. I started around 2011, 2012, um, and they were founded in the UK. They were originally a UK based nonprofit. And they formed at one month after the Rana Plaza disaster. And for those who, who don't know, um, the Rana Plaza disaster was when a factory in Bangladesh collapsed and killed over a thousand garment workers there and injured thousands more. And it was one of the most catastrophic disasters, not just in fashion, but in any industry. 
And um, it was horrible. And they were making clothes for 29 global brands, including Benetton, The Children's Place, El Corte Inglés, and more, a lot of brands. And um, the event was, for all of us, sort of a line of demarcation around something that we sort of suspected was coming Mm. and um, started the modern ethical and sustainable fashion movement. And it was just a handful of us, really, at the time, globally, um, talking about these issues. When, hang on, Rachel. Yeah. Rachel, when you say you something you suspected was coming, you mean that there would be a human disaster I really believed of people there would. locked in? I really believed this, this was coming. At the rate, at what I knew to be going on with production and the circumstances under which um, people were making our clothes, this was going to happen. We didn't know when, but I think this is why I started my career, because— the wheels of the bus were coming off. Like mm. the way the fashion the fashion industry, you think it's unpoliced and unregulated and now. Back then, there were hardly any eyes on it at all. And it was mm. just as cheap as you can make it at whatever cost, whatever human cost, whatever environmental cost. I would talk to rooms of people telling them that this is a, not an environmentally friendly industry. This is not fair to labor. And people didn't know what I was talking about. And they would say, we don't care. Well, I remember the shock of finding out after the after that disaster that one of the reasons 1100 mostly women and children died was because they were literally locked inside the factory buildings and could not get out their windows were boarded like their windows were closed shut painted shut locked and i mean disasters still happen to this day don't get me sure. wrong but at least there is an acknowledgement that this is a problem and we don't need convincing anymore. But that's thanks to organizations like the Fashion Revolution. And it has since become a global nonprofit. One of their first campaigns was called Who Made My Clothes? I've, I held one of the first American oh, events that. here in the United States around that. Yeah, yeah we'd, it's a, it was a great campaign. And it was um, pr- prompting that. people to think about who made their clothes. Back then, even, and I think a lot of people still think their t-shirts are made by robots. No, 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 no. It's very right. manual labor. And um, so it prompted people to think about who made their clothes, the conditions they were working in, and how they were being paid. Right. The fashion revolution has evolved now. It has global chapters. It's always had the, some of the slickest marketing I've seen for any sort of activist work. And it's always been directed at consumers, like inspiring consumers to be, become activists, although it's bigger now. Is it impactful? Are people in the industry paying attention? It is. It is. It's part of the foundation of anything you see happening today around sustainability and social advocacy. And this index this year analyzed 250 of the biggest fashion brands and retailers. And what they mean by biggest is over $400 million in revenue. It scored them from zero to 100%, just like you're getting a grade in class. So 100% would be the best. Um, And... They look at the level of public disclosure. So this isn't about like environmental impact or supply chain impact. It's just about disclosure. It's just about transparency. They're just asking the question, how transparent are these companies on 246 different categories? (laughs) From human rights to environmental policies to practices. The top line takeaway, I would say, you don't have to read the whole report, is that most major brands disclose information about their policies and commitments and processes, but don't have any transparency or very little transparency about results and impact. I mean, the data was like 
99% do not disclose the number of workers in their supply chain that are being paid a living wage. 14% of major brands report their annual production. There's very little reporting of emissions, especially in their supply chains. And on traceability, only 11% of major brands publish some of the raw material suppliers like cotton, wool, viscose. That's up from 7% last year, which I guess we can look at that as an improvement, 7% to 11%. I just want to say one thing, though, like because you asked, does the industry pay mm-hmm. attention? Does the industry pay attention? Yeah. I, I don't think they do. I don't think this is for the industry. And I think it's clear that the industry doesn't really pay attention to it because I think the average score was 24%, up up 1% from last year. And so, you know, um, yeah. clearly 100%. index is not something that the industry feels a lot of pressure about because they're not looking to, they've, they're not clearly looking to overachieve on it. Some of the other stats that I thought were really surprising, um, you know, 85% yeah. don't disclose their annual production volumes. And again, to Christina, your point, it's just this haziness around basic, your basic business. Um, uh, that's obviously something, a number that they know and is completely under their control. But, you know, as as we've talked about before, they like they like shrouding their business in, in mystery and some haziness. Yeah. Um, Other industries, we know how many cars Chevrolet produces, right? We know many, right, how exactly. many houses are built by public ha- publicly traded housing producers. Right, exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, why does, why is this important? Um, why is transparency important? And it's it's so cl- closely aligned with what we talked about with Amanda, um, because transparency is really, you know, um, the first step um, in order to create effective policies and controls. Even the folks at Fashion Revolution talk about we can't wait to stop talking about transparency so that we can get to impact. I'm not I'm not really sure, Rachel, because if you think the audience is consumers, but it's a hundred page report, do you think it's successful? Um, as a as a tool for consumers, I think it serves more as a credibility tool than um, a useful tool in a lot of ways. I mean, yeah. even the tragedy that it came out of—you talked about the Bangladesh factory rescuers who were digging through the rubble needed to look at the labels um, in the rubble to figure out what c- companies were actually. Um, employing the workers there because that information was not available. So it's, you know, this transparency and the need for clean, accessible data, important for policies, important for controls, and also obviously has real-world, real-life impacts. What do you guys think about regulations? I mean, this is a global industry, so it's hard for an individual nation to pass laws that can fix the world. But do you guys see a place for government regulation in this? I mean, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's yeah. the only answer. I, I always look at other industries about what's worked and what hasn't worked. L- look at what happened with c- calorie labeling in, in, in restaurants yeah. and, um, and on menus, which has been around yeah. for several years now. Information more transparent to the end consumer, and yet what has happened? Study after study shows that, uh, you know, uh, ordering habits have not changed and obesity levels have continued to rise in the U.S., um, but then take another example of where it was successful, um, you know, uh, the tobacco industry, which we've talked about before um, on the show. In mm-hmm. 1965, the Federal Cigarette Labeling and Advertising Act mandated that cigarette boxes have that warning slapped on them. But when did cigarette sales start to decline? Only in 2002, 37 years later, um, because it was it was not enough just to have that information available to consumers. You also needed massive public campaigns, smoking bans, taxes, and social pressure for those rates to start to decline. And so yeah. I think that it takes 
all sorts of measures, including transparency, it takes policy, it takes, um, you know, so many levers need to come together to actually create the change um, in a meaningful way that will start to have the impacts on people and planet that um, we need. I totally agree. And I think that, you know, that's why my, one of my primary focus is right now is policy because, not just because industry needs to be regulated, but also to start to clear up confusion because these brands know the issues exist. And right now, everything Mm. that they're doing is voluntary and self-regulated. And so there's no level playing field. There's no harmonization of benchmarks for data. Um, There's no harmonization of policy. There's no harmonization of regulation, hardly any at all. That's why policies coming out of major U.S. states that have a big impact on the fashion industry are important because those have ripple effects. If those policies Mm -hmm. are passed, they have ripple effects globally because brands aren't going to provide data to one state or change their disclosures of water usage uh, or change their water usage on their garments for one state or one country. They're going to do it across the board. Mm. And we just saw that um, happen in California. They had the most sweeping uh, plastics legislation United States ever, and it's going to affect the in, impact the entire uh, plastic manufacturing industry. Really, anyone who wants to sell into California, they're going to do it for one place. They're going to do it for everywhere. Exactly, mm-hmm. right? it's the, easier. Yeah, and and there's so much confusion. I mean, like if you look at even at the level of the UN, the UN IPCC report indicates that global emissions need to be cut by 50 percent to stay within the Paris Accord by 2030. The UN Fashion Charter, the same organization that came up with the IPCC report, only commits fashion companies to 30% in the same amount of time. I want to turn to something that I've been thinking about um, a lot this week. Uh, I have been in quarantine because I have COVID and um, can't see the rest of my family. And so in the first couple of days of COVID, when I was still feeling super healthy, I was listening to podcasts and rearranging the bookshelves. <laughs> In, my, in our room, the master bedroom here. And um, the podcast that I binged first was A Fallen Angels, which is about Victoria's mm-hmm. Secret. Um, and it just, I have to say, you guys, it, it totally blew me away. I mean, it's full of memories for every woman who's yeah, been alive right. in the last 25 years, right? <laughs> right. Of course. I mean, and, but seen through the light of today, the lenses right. that we look through these things cringe. today. It, it's sort of cringe, <laughs> yes. And just like, oh, yes. and I remember that moment. Right. And, uh, just everything. Um, and I haven't looked at, have you guys, either of you seen, because there's also a TV Yeah, doc. I benched. I benched it. Is it yes, I yeah. It. You guys, I you benched, benched it. I watched the first episode. Worth it? I couldn't get past the first episode. Um, I also listened yeah. to the first episode of the podcast. Um, but Rachel, you, you obviously you felt it was compelling enough to sit through. I was also just, I was so burnt out. I was just having one of those nights <laughs> where I was like, I've turned this on and it's, I'm not turning it off. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, right. So I don't, it's too far to get the remote. I think it was captivating to me in that I had, unlike the Abercrombie and Fitch documentary, I had almost blocked out the impact Victoria's Secret had on my not right. only like formative <laughs> high school years when you're thinking about maybe your undergarments a little bit more than when you're little and somebody's buying them for you and you get to choose them yourself. Yeah. But those right. freaking catalogs yeah. that would come to the house as a kid and I would think, oh, is this what I'm Ugh. supposed to look yeah. like? I mean, it's it's incredible. I think the runway show started when I in 1995. So I was 13 when it started. And um, I don't think I knew the word Glamazon before that. Yeah. <laughs> And then all of a sudden, it's just ever-present in 
mainstream media, and it is kind of the model of what you are supposed to look like. I found it fascinating. I did not realize that Victoria's Secret started out as a kind of um, dusty yeah. ladies who lounge, but politely. Lots of velvet. Yeah. Um, brand. Music, a mythical character named Victoria yes. who had a secret. Yeah, very British. Like, you, you, dr- you drink tea and eat crumpets. Um, and, uh, so I thought that was wild. I did not realize that. Um, and then, you know, know. Les Wackensteiner, to his credit, you know, he bought it for a million dollars, drove it to 500 million in sales in two years. I don't think I realized, you know, how quickly he was successful with it. So, you know, that's, that's, that's to his credit. I, I laughed. I don't know if you remember this. They talk about how, um, his idea was to make it a place where women feel comfortable and it's really for them and everything is through their perspective and lens. And I'm thinking, bullshit. Man. If there was ever a more yeah. heterosexual yeah. male totally. vision of womanhood, I don't know. There can't be a better example than Victoria's Secret. A few years ago, I saw a photograph. It was right before things really turned bad for Victoria's Secret. And I saw a picture of the board of directors of the company. Oh. I don't know uh, if you ever had. No, but I can imagine. <laughs> Entire boardroom of octogenarian <laughs> White men. Could have predicted that, yes. Oh, my God. (laughs) Another thing that blew my mind is that he owned The Limited. He started The Limited, Abercrombie, Bath & Body Works, Express. So if you went to the mall in the 90s. That was before Victoria's Secret, I think. You were putting money in his pocket. Grandfather fast fashion, and we didn't realize it. Actually, we can end on this note. The weirdest part of definitely the podcast, and I think you guys mentioned that this also appears in the documentary, is some surmising about the depths of the relationship between Epstein and Wexner mm-hmm. that went places I did not, did, never occurred to me. I'll just put it Lots that way. Nobody has any facts. And but, raising of eyebrows and yeah. heavy implications, yeah. but Woo! no one's actually really no saying one. it, right? Someone knows, yeah. but they're not okay. saying. <laughs> Epstein had hundreds of millions of dollars from Wexner's empire, and it was all from our... He had power of attorney. It's very odd. It's really I mean, odd. I have that for my mom. Right, right, <laughs> right. Like, kind of like a spouse. Right, and we'll leave like, it there. What? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, it is now time to wrap up the show with a look at what's pressing our buttons. Who wants to go first? Rachel. LVMH released a sneaker mm. this week with a upcycling, recycling logo on it, a green one all over the sneaker, which... Kind of pushes my... Yeah, it has literally... It's like they've turned their logo into a recycling logo, and it's big, gigantic upside... I I should have put this in our Slack chat. I kept meaning to. Google it. But it's pushing my buttons because you can't recycle those sneakers. It just has recycled contents in it. And even then, it's like, if you can't recycle them yet, don't jump the gun. Don't jump the gun. Wow. Boom. Absolutely. That's a good one. Yuck. That's that, that good does one. not seem like it will be legal in a few years to be able to do. Right. That. It looks like how you'd have it on a plastic container and I just right. if you can't recycle something, yep. don't put it recycling. Shella, what about you? I'm literally pressing my own buttons in that after two kids, I gained 50 pounds. I've been my 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 youngest kid is 3 and I've been slowly <laughs> on a very slow plan to uh, to shed some of that, some of that extra, extra weight, and was on a was on a good journey with it. But I, I cannot figure out how to incorporate exercise and like non kid snacks. I feel like I'm eating PB and J and Goldfish crackers all day long um, into my diet, and so uh, I, I'm literally pressing my own jean buttons. <laughs> 
pro-Jean buttons. <laughs> Terrifying. So, Christina, what's pushing your buttons? Well, um, two things. Can I do two very quickly? Of course. I feel like I First is, two. damn it, I went two and a half years without getting COVID. I know. And now I feel like I've graduated and I'm going to miss yeah. my old class. Mm. Did you think for a second yeah. you were super yeah. immune? Pretty yeah. <laughs> You had a special gene when you told me that. I've gotten it twice. I didn't think I was special until both uh, both my kids got it. Living in the house with us this summer, and my husband and I managed to not get it from them. They were so good at isolating. And then I go to New Orleans, I come down with it. Boom. So anyway, um, my, but the real hot button I have is um, I I opened up my email today. I saw the latest piece written in in Sourcing Journal by rock star sustainability reporter Jasmine Malik Chua. And it says that um, major American retailers continue to hawk products made with cotton from Turkmenistan, um, made essentially by slaves. Those were supposed to be banned from the U.S. Mm. since 2018. And yet Kmart and Overstock.com and other companies are still selling it. So I'm bummed. That's a, that, I, I hate to end on a sad mm. note, but damn, we even one. got government action. yeah. And we don't know how to block Maybe it. Maybe now that she reported on it, they'll stop, though. She's doing great work. Yeah, exactly. Right. Thank you, Jasmine. Yeah, thanks, Jasmine. Good work. So that is all for the show. Please support us by following us on Twitter. We're at Hot Buttons Pod. Or send a link to friends or colleagues and go to Apple or Spotify and give us a rating. We really appreciate your support. If you want to email us with story ideas, send a note to hotbuttons at postscriptaudio.com. Hot Buttons is hosted by me, Christina Binkley, Shilla Kim Parker, and Rachel Kibbe. The show is produced by Postscript Media. Our senior editor is Anne Bailey. Our engineers are Greg Villefranc and Sean Marquand. Cecily Meza-Martinez is our managing producer. Stephen Lacey, Scott Clavenna, and Rachel Kibbe are our executive producers. Postscript Media makes podcasts at the intersection of climate with culture, politics, business, and tech. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. Thank you for joining us. We'll catch up with you next week. What's that Japanese show about sending your kids into like to run errands for you? There's toddlers yes, that they send. Yes. That's on Netflix, yeah. Really? Yes. Toddlers? It's supposedly a very cute show, but also, yeah, I'm squeamish about it's it. It's terrifying.